big ups going out to the Alibi crew, uh, Teddy MC, rocking the show with us tonight, Alan Zoo, Papa Pete, uh, 18 and up, $5, I think. That'll be fun. what I'm a 
a remix from Hellfire Machine. I'm so heavy, I'm on quit all day, but I stay out my way, I don't play, you're not ready All I can say is I'm so 
Um, we're taping the show, um, and Zizi is in town to do a reading at the art museum. So hopefully, a lot of you managed to catch the reading. Um, Zizi, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, T. It's great to be here. And as uh, as we usually do, I'll read your short bio mm -hmm. from the back of your book, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, um, your first collection of short stories um, out with Riverhead Books. ZZ Packer's stories have appeared in The New Yorker, where she was launched as a debut writer. Harper's and Story have been published in the Best American Short Stories and have been read on NPR's Selected Shorts. Packer is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Writers Award, and a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award. A graduate of Yale, the Iowa Work Writers Workshop, and the Writing Seminar at John Hopkins University, she has been a Wallace Stegner Truman Capote Fellow and a Jones Lecturer at Stanford University, and is currently the Hotters Fellow at Princeton. Yes, the Hotter Fellow. The, at Hot Princeton, the Hotter Fellow. At Princeton, exactly. <laughs> in New Jersey. Yeah, in New Jersey. Yeah, that's how they say it. <laughs> I know. That's where my dad grew up. So. It's an interesting place. It's actually really beautiful. I mean, you know. Have you been getting to the shore? 
the show. No, I haven't gotten to the shore. And I even only just heard about the show Jersey Shore maybe about two weeks ago. And everyone else was sort of like, you haven't heard of this show? But, I, you know. How did it come into your radar at that point then? How did it burst into that protected, beautiful sphere that no, you were creating? not protected or beautiful. I just think that, um, what was I doing? I was doing something. I was talking about how... Um, one of the uh, have a, the babysitter that sometimes watches the kids, and she had left on Housewives of, of Atlanta or something. And so I was just sort of saying, oh, my gosh, I was trying to turn it off because I thought it was just so horrible and trashy, but I just kept watching it. And they're like, oh, but of course you watch Jersey Shore. And I was like, what? There's a show called Jersey Shore. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I'm probably the last person on earth to have found out about Jersey Shore. But did you then go, did you track it down and then watch it? Cause no, I didn't. I, but I, uh, passing through TV one day, <laughs> the channels, <laughs> la, la, la. I, I saw something, Wendy Williams or something. And so she had the cast of Jersey Shore on. So I felt as though, oh, I'll just see what they are who they are and I, I didn't really understand what was what they were I just keep hearing there's some person called the situation and there's Snooky. I've heard about Snooky before at Jersey Shore but I guess I didn't know she was on it I don't know. yeah maybe on Saturday Night Live or something I don't know yeah anyway. I don't know but it's I only watch I watch MSNBC so I end up watching the, you know we're getting news and commentary that way and then the Daily Show that's about and the Colbert Report those are about the things I those are you know, the shows I watch. Did you manage to go attend the rally to for for sanity, to, to and, or sanity fear? and or fear? No, I wish I could have. That was in D.C. and it would have been a short train ride from yeah. uh, Princeton. But, you know, I have two young kids and it's kind of hard to just pick them up and go and, you know. For an all-day thing, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, and they really assume when I'm going someplace and bringing them that it really is for them. So if, if it's something that they don't understand or get, they're just, they're just, they're very sort of self-centered that way, as kids can tend to be. But How old are they? It's easy. They're five and three, so they, you know, they don't. They're sort of like because they, they really will try to understand whatever it is, and if they, you know, you can't sort of tell them, oh, it's just for adults, because they'll just think that they're supposed to get it, and when they don't, mayhem ensues. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which for that event would have been just par for the probably, course. Probably, yeah, but you know, having a three-year-old or you know, five-year-old get crushed by in the sea of adult legs yeah, no, might not be no. great. <laughs> but you are, you mentioned MSNBC and that mm-hmm. your political life is really, uh, your, is active. Yeah, you know, less so now. Um, I feel bad. I feel as though maybe since Obama got elected, I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> it's, it's, it's now, you know. Things are okay now. Things are okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't do nearly as much as I used to or you know, I still try to follow things, but I used to, uh, I was on actually MSNBC once and I, it was uh, talking with, um, Tamron Hall and, um, I, it was opposite Pat Buchanan, which was really strange. It was so odd because I, on a, on a lark, I decided, well, I'm going to write a Huffington Post article kind of uh, around the time Geraldine Ferraro started saying some of this stuff. And I was just sort of like, I wrote a Huffington Post article just in one night and I put it up there. And then the next day, someone from MSNBC called and said, hey, would you be willing to talk about, you know, you know, Obama's race speech? And so, you know, he did the speech and then I sort of went back and forth with Pat Buchanan. And then, you know, wow. I was only on the show for about a total of probably one minute, two minutes. But it was so it was funny. I was intense against Pat Buchanan. Yeah, 
yeah, it was definitely intense. Yeah, because from my childhood, I remember watching him on the uh, McLaughlin group on PBS, you know, when he was uh, on there and always, always disturbing. And then, of course, he ran for president, too, which is hard to think. Yeah, but compared to the Tea Party people, he might seem rational. I know. (laughs) Which even shows how crazy things are getting. I know. What Obama has to contend with. I know. It's a little, it's a little, um, it's a little dispiriting, but but I still, um, you know, try, uh, try to keep up. I just don't do as much political writing as I used to in the past. And I kind of did it as a hobby because I was just, you know, I felt as though, well, this is the only thing I can do. The only thing I can do is write. I'm not, you know, politically savvy. I can't be a kind of real commentator or, you know, even a talking head or even someone who actually does are. policy. I guess but I'm you a are talking head. <laughs> You can't see my head over the radio, but you can hear me. But um, so, but yeah, it's still fun. To, I mean, I, I um, a friend of mine who works for the administration, he got me into the staff ball, so that was really great. You know, I didn't get to actually see and meet Obama, but he he works from he actually works. He probably has the most loathed job, not loathed job, but he for a while worked under Geithner, Timothy Geithner. Yeah, but on one hand, I was very happy for him because you know he went from. He was actually a student of mine just at a, a conference, and, um, you know, and he would ask for recommendations, and I'd read some of his stories, and then, you know, he was very politically active, and then he said, oh, he's just come to D.C. for the inauguration, and so, you know, he got me tickets to stuff, but, um, but and so he kind of went from just being, you know, very low on the totem pole to actually having a job in the administration, but it's also a job that everyone blames him for everything going horrible with the economy. No one's buying him drinks when no, he's at the bar, no, right? They're no. more expecting him to buy exactly. the round to make up for some things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so so you say there's, um, I'm going to write about it, but I think, you know, there's there's nothing I can do uh, else mm-hmm. I can do, so I'll write about it. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that's a really brave thing to do, to put your, because you're putting yourself in the public sphere talking about politics and not everyone either agrees, feels yeah. ag- agrees or feels confident enough yeah. in their own voice yeah. whereas it sounds like you you're get maybe something gets to you or riles you up and then you're like I'm I'm taking part and so mm-hmm. you write something for the Huffington Post and Yeah, for, well I think one of the reasons is that I feel I feel that so many writers at least this is how I am become writers because not because they're so great at writing but because they're so inarticulate when they're speaking and so they really have no other choice but to write at least that's how it is with me like the best self it can be on the page in some ways the best voice exactly I feel as though when I'm writing I can actually revise and edit and you know sometimes I just sort of think well why doesn't everyone do that because once you can just change things around then it'll sound good or at least better than it would if it just came out immediately but every I guess not everyone is you know able to do that can you imagine Sarah Palin doing that oh my gosh and she's the one who really needs to do it I mean you know but you know some people have a sort of you know a sort of you know orational gift you know and obviously Obama's one of them and yeah even like the the rhythm of his language how he's speaking Mm -hmm. and isn't it isn't it was didn't someone say that he did that even from when he was young, like in college, or like he had that. Yeah. It wasn't something that he trained into because of his aspiration mm-hmm. to the Senate or the president. I think that what happens is that certain people, if you are able to 
watch what you do well and catch it and not be afraid to go after it, then then you end up doing the thing that you like to do. And for Obama, I mean, he, I think, decided, oh, I'm really good at speaking and conveying ideas. And he went ahead and did it. So instead of just saying, I mean, who would who else would sort of say, oh, I'm going to write yet another memoir. No one knows who I am, but nobody knows anything about me, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. And he just, he did it. And I think that more people kind of need to be able to do that so they can realize their, like you were saying, their best selves. But yeah, he didn't, I don't think that it was anything that he trained for, but I think that one of the things that happened when you were kind of following your, not necessarily your bliss, but your path, is that you end up training yourself. So even though it may not look or seem like formal training, the kinds of things you're guided to, the kinds of things that you do best or make you happiest are the things that are sort of rigorously working out the muscles of your particular gift. And so even though he didn't formally train for it, I know that he was always giving speeches at Occidental College and doing this and that. And he was like, you know, um, able to obviously go into law school and do very well and work on the Harvard Review and be the editor, you know. And so those are all part and parcel of kind of him training his, his particular gift, not just oratory, but of, of uh, sort of wordsmithery in a way and conveying ideas. Is that how you felt like at a certain point at Yale when you found like you've maybe found some bliss or like how did that open up for you ZZ with that transition because it seems like you I read that you wanted to maybe be in the sciences or an engineer and then to your parents' chagrin or yeah. whatever. I mean, yeah, I don't became, know. That's kind yeah. of your, your myth now. But I, anyway. No, I think, it's, I think it's true. I mean, even though as early as high school or even earlier, I realized I loved writing and reading and just kind of did it all the time. I never really thought about it as anything that was a career or anything that was functional. I just sort of thought about it as something one enjoyed. And there never seemed to be this leap in my mind between, you know, someone wrote this book and now I'm reading this book. It just sort of seemed like books were objects and you read them and they were enjoyable. And But I had never sort of thought, oh, being a writer is a profession or an application or a, a job similar to being a, a doctor or a lawyer or you know a grocer or something like that. So um, I just, even though I love doing it, I didn't really think much about it as, I just kind of thought of it as kind of a hobby or something. Um, and then in college, you know, I was taking all these math and science courses. I'd go ahead and just for the prerequisite sake, I would take, uh, you know, all these other English courses. And I found that, you know, I could just in one night knock out a paper, whereas it would take me forever to do these problem sets for physics lab and physics and like bio lab and bio, you know, yeah, bio class. And, and, um, it was just very difficult. I mean, not that I didn't do it and do it, you know, well in some instances, but, it just sort of made me realize, wait, if I'm able to do this other stuff very easily, maybe I should be doing that all the time. And keep do- getting better at it or, yeah. like, pushing that. Uh, and, and even when I was writing stories, I never even thought about that as even related to my English classes. I mean, they were just kind of stories. And they took so you were, time. So you were writing stories then, like, Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the my or... ways of procrastinating, I was just like, oh, I've got a problem set. I'll just work on this story a little bit, and I'll just keep, you know working on it and I would just do it and it really didn't seem to have any end uh, to be an end of itself or to do anything um, or to have any kind of purpose it just sort of it was something that for me was almost like 
blowing off steam and just something that I enjoy doing. And I guess the the problem that I had um, and uh, my mistaken thinking was that anything that was so enjoyable wasn't worth doing. And I think eventually I realized, wait, you know, um, you don't have to, you know, uh, bleed yourself every day or suffer exactly that, you know, you could be trying to make this the thing that you do do all the time if you really enjoy it. And I don't know when exactly that happened. Oh, I think I kind of do. I mean, I went home for a winter break and, you know, my mom was always trying to shape us so she would get, you know, Newsweek for us in 17 and, you know, she just had a certain way she wanted us to be. So I would I checked out the 17 magazine that was really for my sister and I was just looking through it and you know amidst the lip glosses and Your whatever. Your younger sister. My right? younger okay. sister, yeah. And so I saw this contest that they had. It was a, a writing contest. I was like, "Oh, well, I've written stories." So um I sent in a story that it really labored on and I thought it was just, you know, I had like I used to love, and I still love uh, Nabokov, and so, you know, sort of like all of these, like, really hard words were in it, you know, just very obtuse, and um, and there was a dash of sort of Flannery O'Connor and Toni Morrison and whatever in there, too. And then Shaken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and I thought that, okay, this is what, you know, and then, of course, because um, I thought, you know, a story wasn't a story unless it was kind of about New York or alluded to New York or had some sort of, you know, it was very urbane and sophisticated. Was this an early Sex in the City story? Oh, no, it wasn't <laughs> quite like that. But I don't, now I'm trying to even remember that story. But it was just, it was bad, trust me. It was so bad. So I put that in there to, to send off to the contest. And then at the last minute, I was like, oh, there's this other story. But it was kind of more just, you know, these two... African American girls, and they're in Atlanta, and you know one of their uh, uh, one of them has a dad who had to go to jail, which you know was like very similar to one of my friends, and but but you know she had this very strict upbringing, so you know you would never have sort of guessed that or guessed her whole sort of, you know not that it was her past or bad, it was just something her dad had done, but um and it was just a, but obviously that wasn't just the initial situation, it was just sort of like those were the borrowed positions of the characters and it, they sort of took off from there and, and after that wasn't anything like me and my friend but but uh you know it, I think I was but it was closer to you than the story that you had labored over and set in New York City yeah well also closer just because I think that in terms of tone and voice and you know character it had more to do with the things that I was concerned about like those other things were things I thought I could should be concerned about um you know I always sort of thought you know, we had New Yorker stories. There's a certain number of italicized words that are generally like foreign words or something like that. And I just thought, oh, well, I've got to like somehow find a way to work in a bridge or, you know, not that that was italicized, but, you know, just some kind of word like, you know, um, preeminent that I always have that sort of umlaut over it to separate the two E's. Or pre- and I was uh, sort of looking at those hallmarks to sort of make my stories sort of more like the stories I thought um, would be appreciated, but so then when the they call me, Seventeen Magazine called me and said, "Hey, we, we you won the not I didn't actually win. I think it was second place or something. You know, we're gonna publish your story, and you know, you're one of the prize winners." And I was so happy because I had you know labored over that you know Nabokovian, Toni Morrison, Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> Rarian story, and uh, and I realized they were talking about the story I just sort of added in as a kind of an addendum almost or whatever. And uh, and that's when I kind of, when I, you know, when they were telling me, oh, that this is this, you know, like, we had, 
this is the story we're gonna go and run and edit and um, I just realized oh okay that's what it is it's just it's writing the stuff that you're interested in you know and that's what matters and that it has to matter to you because it's going to be very obvious on the page whereas the stuff that doesn't matter to you or is not quite not to say that it's not in your orbit of experience but that you are you know really straining to write because you think you should be writing it the inauthenticity is going to sort of breed you know um breathe from the page and um and something that's genuine you know breathes you know as genuine. yes and so then i kind of thought okay that's you know that was sort of lesson number one um but then i when that occurred, I just thought, well, this is great. I mean, going over the edits was fun. Just, you know, seeing it in print was fun. Um, and then writing other stories after that was was just, to me, really fun, even though it was also difficult. Um, so I think that's when I realized you have to kind of follow the thing that, you, that brings you joy. Um, and you have to kind of take the risk because a lot of people will say, don't do it, you know, or you're not going to make any money doing that or whatever. But if you look at the people who are successful, you know, that's what they do. I mean, you know, Zuckerberg, I mean, he not only just did computer, you know, programming, but, you know, coming up with that site. I mean, it's obviously something he's he can't help but do. So you might as well do the thing that is sort of you're obsessed with because when you're working and in the workforce, you're going to be working all the time anyway. <laughs> so you might as well be working on something you enjoy rather than something you don't enjoy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then again, there's, you know, there's enjoying it and it being so difficult that you're just sort of like, oh, you know, do I have to do another rewrite? Or but, not, or also, but, but okay, but let's also look at it a little bit more because it seems like then you had a, like a, a pretty early success with this, mm. even though it wasn't the story you anticipated, mm-hmm. it was still, do, what was the title of that story, Zizi? Can you I remember the winning? I think it was winning? called, Sometimes You Get Lucky. It was like a very, almost sort of after school special type of story. <laughs> wait, wait, that was the winning story? Or that, no, was, that was the other? story. Oh. It's called Sometimes You Get Lucky. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it's very, you know, uh, it's not high art. <laughs> That's great. Though. But, you know, but Seventeen Magazine, it was a, a launch pad. People don't, some people don't realize, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton were published and oh, I didn't know their that. starts at Seventeen. Yeah, yeah. It was, they were telling me so that. So you're in good company. Amazing. Well, I, I, well, I felt like be it. careful. Yeah. I mean, I you seem ba- balanced and yeah, happy. Yeah, I don't so. But, no, I mean, dear. Sylvia Plath yeah. is amazing. So, yes, but, yes. but, um, and Anne Sexton too, I think. Like, oh, she can write a love poem, like, in whatever that love and turmoil is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you just kind of need a start, you know. And the start is it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, um, I mean, obviously, you know, I was, what, 19 when I wrote that. So um, it's going to be vastly different from something that I write at the age of, you know, 25 or 30 or 35 or 40. So, but you do need to begin somewhere. And and so you so you had that sort of someone saying you yes you right and then what happened after that work because you said it's fun and difficult so mm-hmm. I'm wondering did it continue where you like magazines did keep responding to you or was your were your stories accepted in different places so that there was that that mm, kept you going yeah. or was the difficult part not just the craft the writing itself but it was also getting out there and keep going even if people say no or. 
Oh, both, actually. I mean, I would say that one of the things that happened is, you know, I just wrote a lot, but also uh, the more you write, the more you realize your limitations as a writer, and the more you learn about, you know, literature, the more you realize your limitations as a writer. So every time you're going to the page or the computer screen or whatever, you know, in the back of your head, you have people like, Dostoevsky, who you know has written great, great works, and you're thinking, oh, I'm trying to do the same thing that he's trying to do. Well, what gives me the right to do that, or how can I even begin when there are these great writers who've uh, already, you know, who've preceded me? Um, so that's on the one hand incredibly difficult, and then um, you know, just to make something read as though it is has always been and as though it wasn't crafted at all takes a lot of work so a lot of times sometimes people will say oh you're writing it just sort of it just it just seems so effortless and it's sort of like well actually it takes a lot of effort to make it look effortless and um so so it's just it's very difficult it's very hard but also it's hard because you know in terms of publishing um, you know, a lot of I think a lot of people thought, oh, you did all this in such a short time, but you know, I was writing for such a long time, and you know, I would send things off to tons of places, and um, you know, um, and get rejected by tons and tons of places. And but I think that you have to kind of look at every experience as being a worthy experience in some way or another. So all those rejections, I thought, okay, well, you know. At least I'm going to try to get something out of this rejection. So, or the next rejection. So, I would ask in a cover letter for uh, whoever the editor was to just give me a few lines or a few words about the story, what happened. And then, so most times they would. I mean, it, these are incredibly busy people. So, they'd say, oh, this isn't working, or this gets messy, or that gets what. So, that was invaluable advice because. You know, here's someone who reads thousands and thousands of stories, and they're taking the time to tell you what's wrong or right with the story. But Zizi, isn't that like um, actually miraculous in itself that that your story got as far as that person who was the editor? Because mm. isn't there like when you're sending to some of these places, like like the New Yorker, mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. um, like to even get to someone's desk that isn't maybe several like there's several interns mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. or there's volunteers who aren't even interns I'm yeah. imagining that's like uh, yeah, reading the, the slush school. pile is big yeah I think that with some of it I, I what you know I, I don't know necessarily how some of how it necessarily happens I think part of it is that you know if someone you know matter how low on the totem pole recognizes something in the story that makes them think you know, of their own, not just their own experience, but makes them think or makes them feel, then, you know, you're, you're already kind of ahead of the game. So even if, you know, I was doing a lot, making a lot of mistakes in a lot of early writing, and I still make a, a ton of mistakes, you know, but it's, it's, it's hard to figure out how to sometimes remedy them. But if you're always kind of going at it with the idea that you want to tell a good story and you want people to be moved in some way, then I think that, you know, people sort of say, oh, well, it's all over the place, but I'll pass it along because this part made me laugh or I, this was just, you know, this is just how you feel when someone dumps you or something like that. So I think it's really getting to that basic part of human experience that we all share that's universal that can get you beyond the slush pile, you know. And also I think that I would, you know, the cover letters, I'm sure if you write something to an editor 
and you say, oh, could you please just give me a little bit of help? I mean, you know, you have to realize even as busy as these people are, a lot of them go into it, or most of them hopefully go into it. The love they of love, it. They yeah. love it. So when someone is just asking for your opinion and, you know, it takes you a couple minutes to jot it down, then then you, a lot of them will do it. I mean, but I've been surprised by how many would do it. So, um, but sometimes it's just, the asking, you know, I mean, if you don't ask, then it's sort of more anonymous. And if you do ask, it's like, oh, here's this young, you know, writer, you know, who's kind of all over the map. <laughs> Just give her a few pointers, you know. And um, so, so sometimes you have to do that. If you care about it enough, you know, you'll do it. I think that a lot of people get really um, bogged down by failure, which is their own sort of perfectionism kind of really overtaking them and overcoming them. But to succeed at anything, you're going to have to fail so many times that you have to kind of think of that as being part of the territory. So if you don't sort of go into it with the attitude, I'm going to fail a lot before I get to my goal, then you're going to just be, it's going to be very hard, if not impossible. So you almost have to, you, you can't have a thin skin about it, and you have to be persistent and you have to really love it because being persistent about something that you hate <laughs> is not is no fun. It has to be something that you're going to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, people, I remember Lori Moore would always say, you know, if you, uh, you know, people would ask, well, you know, I don't know if I should be a writer or not. And she would say, well, then, then don't. No. <laughs> yeah, because it's going to be so hard enough as it is if you don't really love it and you don't, you know, you don't, you don't know whether or not you want to do it. It's just going to be too much. You just have to know. She's great. She's 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 a friend of the show too. Oh, she's Lori Moore is so funny. Her humor is just nuts. It's so funny when you meet her because she has this voice. It's very sort of almost like a librarian like, and I love it. It's so gentle and sort of uh, you know evocative in this sort of tingly like very sort of like silky way. And but her humor is so wicked and just <laughs> you know not even blunt because it's very nuanced. But it's just so... It's, it's, and she's unafraid. Oh, she's completely unafraid. I she mean, claimed the Bee Gees as some of her... Like, she did not even back, because I just thought we would have a laugh about it. But then she's like, well, that was pre-orthodontia. Uh, <laughs> her site, like, when they came out with their... Yeah. Anyway, some... But um, but actually, back to your writing, mm-hmm. Cece. Um, mm-hmm. Well, um... So so we so when we started, I mentioned your your collection, uh, national bestseller, mind you, drinking coffee elsewhere, um, and so the short stories here and and lovely, and you've probably talked a lot about these, and and so <laughs> the question I'd like to ask you is, well, geez, anything you'd like to say about them, please do, because they're lovely. Um, but the, the your current project is is writing your first novel mm-hmm. and to do with the Buffalo Soldiers and it's a it's it seems like a more it's a historic mm-hmm. like looking historical fiction and a, more of a like a it seems like a massive undertaking Ugh, and yeah. then you have these stories that are almost like maybe looking at them now like friends uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. so what is it like to take this 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 shift from the stories and is it a shift mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. this collection of stories are you still writing stories as you're working on the novel what's happening for you now in the writing yeah well um it has been a shift and i think that i'm still working it out even though i've you know finished a draft of this novel and could very well turn it in it still feels so you've got the whole yeah, yeah but here's the, th- the deal every day i come up with more stuff <laughs> 
<laughs> that needs to be in it. And not just in it, in a sort of content, uh, uh, in terms of content, but also just in terms of um, new ways of seeing the work. And, and kind of the only reason why I'm resisting turning it in right now is that even though I think it, it succeeds in some ways. There's there are other ways in which, for me to feel as though it's ready to be sent out, I have to sort of feel it resonating and rattling around, um, much the way I sort of feel the stories do, and that takes a lot. I mean, I think it takes. I remember Juno Diaz talking about this a little bit because, you know. He was working on the brief and wondrous wor uh, uh, world, uh, brief and wondrous life of Oscar Wow for a while, but um, he came up with, you know, he the sort of this long story, and then he began to sort of interweave these other bits, you know, about the past and the Dominican Republic and that kind of thing, but it had to be sort of mediated through this storytelling voice that he could sign off on, and felt comfortable with and in. And authentically yes authenticity and even though there's a lot that's in the uh, novel that is that way there's just enough that I feel as though I really have to kind of work on it and massage it and get it to that point that I feel as though it can click because the other stuff I can figure out and like you know the edits are one thing the revisions are one thing the you know like getting this date right or yeah. that date right is another you know stuff that I can work on and do um, afterwards, but I can't really turn it in until it's completely the voice it needs to be, and that's the thing that I need to get at. So it is a different, it is a big shift because, for one, the longer and bigger the thing is, not to say that the short stories aren't big, but the because um, uh, they're their own world. Yes, they are their own world, and this is its own world in a different way. But it requires kind of um, a, a, a lot of sort of energy in getting that to. Sustaining kind of, yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, to sustain it and to be able to, for it to work the way it needs to work. That deeply, like you said, that resonance. Yeah. And so are you able to say how you sense in the places that it's not working like mm, that? That's tough. I mean, I think that what it... it I don't want to make it sound so mystical as though it's <laughs> sort of, you know... Um, but I don't know. When you listen to someone like... Coltrane to bring music into this or something. You know, there's a way in which with even a lot of just, or especially with, I should say, a lot of improvisational stuff that you can feel the rightness of it, you know? And um, and I don't know how to say what all of that is because it's not just something that it's, uh, you can just do a, a bit of sort of checklisting on and saying, oh, are all the verbs this way or that way? Are all the prepositional phrases this way or that way? It's not quite like that. It really has to do with um, does this, you know, voice speak in the way that it needs to speak? And maybe I should, you know, give myself over to the mysteriousness of that. Yes. But it does need to happen, and that's something that, you know, one needs to arrive at, I think. And it's something that you're sensing, Zizi, mm -hmm. rather than, like, if somebody else were to read some of the same, like, mm -hmm. maybe the chapters or something, like, would they even notice, would there be... Like well, a, they might say that it's good, you know, which I would appreciate, and it makes me feel, <laughs> it makes me, me feel good, but it doesn't make me feel good enough as me... <laughs> 
Yeah, because no, it's you. It's like you are the one that has to reckon. Mm-hmm. Is the reckoning? With. Yeah, and um, and that is the mystery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I wish I could say exactly what it is. I was just you know talking about voice in your anti anti craft talk. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm recognizing the the domain and world of it, but um, of of voice and how it operates, but um, or rather that it operates, but um. But recognizing in what ways, you know, what's the combination click code for it? You know, the way you would uh, um, sort of open, mm-hmm. trick open a lock or something, a combination lock. That is something that is beyond me. And I don't know if there is even a way to address it that way. But um, I do know that a, a lot of times people feel it when it's right, you know. And writers and readers. Yes, writers and readers. And, um, I, but you know, it takes a certain type of reader too because there are people who read, you know, uh, just, I don't know, Clive Cussler or somebody who's probably great. I, you know, I've never really, but they, they have a different sort of set of criteria than I would for, you know, um, for a good novel. Because you, it seems like you require the mystery, like that. Because and Robert Basel was just here last week, and he talks about like the half known world, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's a great. Yeah, that metaphor. book is great. He has a great uh, a collection of essays with Grey Wolf, Grey Wolf Press. Yeah, yeah. Grey Wolf is amazing. Plus, a lot of Charles Baxter does stuff yes. down the house. He does. Yeah, I mean, it, it is like that. I mean, that's why it sounds sometimes so. I, I always think that people who talk only authoritatively about writing music or whatever they're missing something because there is this mystery there is this mysterious part of it which it's great when writers are able to sort of uh, uh, address it to the extent that you know they're somehow articulate about this thing that's so mysterious and you're so grateful to them about it so that's why people who write about music and write really well about it I'm just amazed and the same thing with writing I'm amazed but there is a part of it that is sort of seems to be unclickable in a way like you could see it when it occurs um and you understand when it's flourishing and the, the the kinds of conditions under which it flourishes but uh the sort of makeup of it is remains elusive um and you can only sort of which is not to say that i don't think that we should try to find it or try to you know to keep searching or to keep trying to understand it but part of it is 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 uh is is hard to it's hard to plumb and it's hard to sort of uh, um, I don't know sort of almost palpitate in a way, but you know um, I I think Boswell did a really good job in Half No World at least talking about that. I mean um, he's got this one essay about pornography and then he extends the metaphor to literary pornography, which is in his mind sort of more egregious, a more egregious sin than you know, the actual pornography because it's, it's sort of appropriating these, you know, a sort of sloppy way of, in a sloppy and a crude way of viewing something that's actually very beautiful and subtle and um, difficult and lovely. So that's his sort of definite, in a way, def- I don't want to take his words out of his mouth. I mean, I'm probably saying it all wrong, but... Um, no, but, it sounds good. But, um, and those are the kinds of things that are kind of difficult, you know, that you always want to be thinking about, so you don't want to just sort of uh, abandon all modes of thought about them, but there's a part that one, in the end, realizes it's going to elude um, any 
formal knowledge or grasp. And that's the only way it will truly work. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I would, I, I so want to figure out, you know, how it does truly work, but you know, I guess you have to sort of give up a little bit of, um, of, uh, of wanting or knowledge or seeking in order to receive it. <laughs> so, and sometimes I think it's sort of, yeah, well, it's always there, you know, you know, it's sort of like if you, um, it's not just the going out to find it. It's probably there, but you need to somehow, I don't know if unearth is the right word, but you somehow need to um, be available to it. That's why I think the, the notion of a muse is so powerful, but people still begin to tend to think of a muse as something that comes to one rather than something that's already there. And if one is sort of um, open enough to it, will uh, appear. It's hard to talk about because it's like you're talking about any notion of like spirit or mm-hmm. soul or something like what makes us what animates us mm-hmm. besides the the tick tock of the heart and the lungs. and Yeah. The, you know. Yeah. yeah. At some point, you know, the mechanics addresses all the different parts and can address it. Those parts, you know, each by each. But, you know, to sort of say what makes us human is, is a, a, a whole other question. You That'll know? be our next conversation. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned with ZZ Packer and T. Plumb the depth of what makes yeah. us human. Yeah. Hey, ZZ, would you mind reading a little oh, bit sure. for us for a couple, uh, I don't know, a couple minutes or so? Okay. What, does um, that sound good? Sure, I'll read a little bit of this. Um, this is from The Thousands. And I think it's from it's from the first chapter. Okay. Do we need to know anything kind of going going in or I guess first chapter to know <laughs> that that there's a um, a boy and his name is Lazarus, which at the time was not a very uh, uncommon name for uh, slaves, and um, it seems sort of you know highly symbolic now maybe. And then his sister Mary Celeste, who's deaf, and um, actually this is uh, after emancipation so but they still find themselves running away because during reconstruction and and a lot of slaves remained on or ex-slaves remained on uh some of the plantations so that's just the only background i think you need did this come like did this um did lazarus come to you first as like an image or was it did was it start as um a short story like was it something or how did you, because this is, seems like a huge project. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I think I started at first being so interested in the Buffalo Soldiers, which is why it's a little different from my other projects, because with the stories, usually I will, as you said, start with an image or the character or a line that somehow seems um, that the rest of the world will be based on, even if I have to scrap that line. And this began as more of a sort of an interest. So I'm having to kind of back hoe my way into, you know, some of the other aspects of it, which make it more difficult, but, but, um, almost interesting in another way of being along this journey, because I've sort of, uh, seen the world and now I have to sort of find the access point. But I almost, as you're explaining it, or Mm -hmm. I I almost think of you as like, when you're, as you're learning it, you're Mm -hmm. entering into this your imagination is making that time real. Mm-hmm. So you're almost more present, like you're even your physical, it's almost mm-hmm. present mm-hmm. going into that imagined yeah. historical time. Mm-hmm. 
in a way that maybe isn't necessary with the sh- the sh- short story, the, the ones in drinking coffee elsewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and is that true? Like, is it is there might is there a chance that you're infused into this in a much different way? I think so. I mean, you have to do a lot of when you're writing a. A sort of novel like this, you have to do a lot of time traveling, which takes a lot of effort because you're literally, like you're saying, you can't. Have, you're not literally. I won't say that, <laughs> but you are having to um, really kind of be in that time, and um, you know, you can ima- imagine that you know it takes a while to sort of get in and a while to sort of get out. Um, whereas with something that's more contemporary. Um, and I think shorter, you can actually sustain that world for a while, for an intense while, and it's difficult, but intense. And then when you're finished, you're finished, and you can sort of do the revisions and such. But with this, it's sort of in and out and in and out and in and out of that w- world, which um, is a, at a different time. But still, it is still the world of human emotions and human beings and actions and suffering and happinesses and loss. So you still have that. But what I think happens is, we, you almost have to sort of strip away your notions of what just occurs at that time. I mean, it's something that you feel responsible for. Yeah, I'm writing a historical novel, so I have to be aware of what happens at that time, and I'm responsible for being accurate about it. But also, you have to kind of forget about it so that you can not let, let that be your main project, but to have the human emotion be the main project. So um, I'll just read a little bit, and then I'll maybe, I don't know how, a minute or so you said? A couple minutes would be perfect. It's easy. Early yet, the morning clouds the color of silver fox, and Lazarus was running. His sister Mary Celeste hadn't heard the dogs chasing them, nor could hear them being deaf. And despite his signing to her what the plan was, and for her to keep up as best she could, she'd nevertheless been treed. And soon, so would he, if he were lucky, and could make it to a likely pine in time. Earlier, he'd thrown rocks, possibly wounding two of the dogs whom he heard nothing from in a while, but the third was in full barking pursuit. Stay, he yelled at her, though yelling without sign did no good, and all he could hope was that she'd made the rustle he'd seen ten or so pines away. Such an animal ranting he'd never heard before and hoped never to hear again. He couldn't help cursing his luck for getting split from Mary Celeste, then cursed her for being so stubborn and full of vinegar and so deaf. All he could hope was that she'd made the rustle he'd seen. From the sound of it, the dog who'd been tailing him was neither gaining nor retreating, just an incessant yelping that was part snarls of threat and screams of being threatened. Perhaps it had already found its quarry up a tree. If so, that left Lazarus with nothing to do but to stop and push away the pounding blood in his head and struggle to divine where the arcing sounds could be coming from. Perhaps, though, That tree and that quarry the dog had found was Mary Celeste. He cocked his ear, subtracting the echoes, bouncing until one spot seemed sure. No time, he ran toward it until he got to the trees where his wood sense told him she might be. There was no real knowing about it, but the dog leaping out from him from nowhere proved him right. It was one thing to be chased by hounds as a runaway slave. Another thing entirely to be a runaway once free with the deaf sister who'd spent the first part of their escape traipsing through the woods as though she'd had time to examine every leaf that caught her fancy. And so, two years free, Lazarus still found himself hoisting himself up a pine like a runaway, digging his nails into soft bark, aiming towards clouds above, and praying the next branch up 
wasn't as nearly as far away as it looked, nor the hound below as close as it sounded. Thank you. Was that okay? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's so difficult with this because I sort of try to f figure out, okay, well, what needs to stay? What needs to go? How much is here? How much is there? Is it like the right voice for it yet? Or, you know, any of that stuff. So I'm still, even though I'm 600 pages, you know, into it, I'm still messing around with it, you know? I mean, I think that's one of the things that ends up happening is that sometimes you just have to kind of keep turning and clicking and working and, you know, maneuvering it and massaging it and figuring it out. I don't know. And, and, and you have to have the fortitude, the resiliency to do that, yeah, to, to believe in the world that you've made. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. But, um, but hopefully I will sort of get it to the point where I feel as though everything is right with it, you know. It's so weird because people will say, oh, well, the New Yorker published, you know, the, the excerpts or the just, you know, the story or whatever. So it should be, if they publish it, it should be right. But yeah. but I still don't, I don't feel that way about it. I feel as though there's still stuff to do with it and make it, you know, what it needs to be. You have to approach the mystery. Yeah. Some, a little yeah. more. Yeah. So. Well then, so maybe and maybe we can talk again once mm -hmm. once when when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would love as to because it, it will. <laughs> One of these days, Zizi, thanks so much for being thanks, here T. today. It's it, been great. It's been it's been awesome. I've loved it. And so the, you've been listening to Living Writers. Um, I'm T Hetzel on the program today. Zizi Packer. Um, her, you can go and grab a copy of Drinking Coffee elsewhere. Uh, Zizi's collection of short stories, and hope to talk. Talk to you again soon, Susie. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Here. I wanna love you and treat you right. I wanna love you every day and every night. We'll be together with the roof right over our heads. We'll share the shelter. This is Free Speech Radio News for Friday, November the 26th, 2010. From San Francisco, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up on today's program, we bring you a special half-hour documentary on Vancouver's downtown Eastside, a historic neighbourhood in Canada's third largest city and home to about 16,000 people. It's also known as Canada's poorest postal code. The area is infamous for its high rates of poverty, drug addiction, disease, crime and mental illness but also for community organising and pioneering strategies to address drug abuse. Our reporter, Zach Bardorf, brings us this exclusive documentary, Vancouver's Downtown East Side, Life on the Margins. The downtown east side is one of Vancouver's oldest and most notorious neighborhoods. It was once the economic hub of the port city, but began a downturn with the Great Depression. The introduction of heroin in the 70s and crack cocaine in the 80s and 90s exacerbated the pre-existing problems of poverty and substance abuse. Per capita income is just under $7,000 a year. That's a third the average income of most Canadians. About half of those in the downtown east side rely on government income assistance. An estimated 4,700 drug users live in the area's dozen square blocks, with one of the highest concentrations of intravenous drug addicts in the world. 
It's also a population that's reviled and marginalized and ostracized by the culture. You know, it, it, in a sense, it's a receptacle for all of society's dysfunctions. Dr. Gabor Mate is a staff physician at the Insight Supervised Injection Facility, the first of its kind in North America. The downtown Insight represents the dark mirror that nobody wants to look in because it reflects everything about the rest of society that society doesn't want to look at. A 2009 Vancouver police report describes the neighborhood as in crisis. In a downtown east side alley behind the Regent Hotel, First Nations elders sing while beating traditional drums. About a hundred other people join them here to remember the life of Ashley Nicole Machiskanik, a 22-year-old indigenous woman who died on this spot a month before. She fell five floors from her hotel room window. Vancouver police initially called the death a suicide. Many at the vigil say Machiskanik was pushed out the window by a dealer for not paying up on a drug debt. Different levels of people can do different things. Um, for anything, there's always the dirty deed people who do things. Um, I know of a couple of girls who got punched out because they owe, but they don't want to say nothing. They come to me and they won't say anything other than they owed money. And one girl got her tooth knocked out. Um, women have come in with black eyes. They don't want to say nothing. There's such a deep code of silence down here that people don't want to talk. Carol Martin, a longtime social worker in the area, arrived here just minutes after Machiskanik hit the ground. When I seen her laying here, she was still breathing a little bit, but it was kind of ragged. And she just laid there like she was sleeping and, you know, that kind of um, ragged uh, breathing. And there was a young girl bent over um, holding her hand. And so when I came, I just happened to walk and I looked and her head was there and her body was there. Martin works in the downtown Eastside Women's Center, a space exclusively for women and their children that provide support to over 300 people a day. The Vancouver police report that violent crime has been pervasive in the downtown Eastside for decades. Much of the violence is perpetrated against women. 